Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton. Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we use the brains that God gave us. Critics of the Bible often try to discredit its message by saying, hey, look, they can't even get their basic history right. Look at all the look at all this stuff they got wrong. There's just no it's and some, uh, you know, they say it's just it's a book of fairy tales. They don't even think it has any historical basis at all. And around this time of year. If you try to witness to a non-Christian, you might run into some charges of historical inaccuracy, particularly since it's Christmas time regarding the birth narratives of Jesus. As always, my goal at Cerebral Faith is to equip my Christian listeners with the answers to respond to these folks uh, in their evangelistic efforts. And I also want to win some unbelievers who might be tuning into this. The reliability of the New Testament is in the wheelhouse of my guest today, Dr. Lydia McGrew. Dr. Lydia McGrew is a widely published analytic philosopher, homeschooling mother, author, and the wife of philosopher and apologist Timothy McGrew. She received her Ph.D. in English from Vanderbilt University in 1995. She has published extensively in the theory of knowledge, specializing in formal epistemology and in its application to the evaluation of testimony and to the philosophy of religion. She defends the reliability of the gospel and acts in her books, Hidden in Plain View, Undesigned Coincidences in the Gospels and Acts, and The Mirror or the Mask, Liberating the Gospels from Literary Devices. Dr. McGrew, it's really good to have you on the program today. Thanks for having me, Evan. It's good to be here. So I remember... um, I remember meeting Tim, uh, Tim McGrew at the National Conference on Christian Apologetics back in 2017, and I, I bought your book, Undesigned, uh, Hidden in Plain View, directly from him, and he was surprised to see me there. He didn't know I was going to be there. We've been friends on Facebook for years, um, and then I, then I uh, took it home, read it, and it was, it was a really good book. I had been introduced to Undesigned Coincidences from J. Warner Wallace. He talks about it in his chapter in Cold Case Christianity, but I hadn't read like a whole book dedicated to that subject, and it's, it's quite fascinating how they just – the gospel authors, they just kind of – they, they raise questions and they answer other, each other's questions to kind of like fit together like puzzle pieces. Yep. So today, this is um, this is part of our Christmas apologetic series. Last week, I had Michael Jones of Inspiring Philosophy on to talk about whether we should even celebrate Christmas. And today, we're going to be having you um, respond to some negative arguments against the birth narratives of the Gospels, but also uh, there's actually some good positive evidence for the reliability of the birth narratives. Yep. There is. It's exciting. So, first, um, and th- on pathos.com, there's an article written by my fellow dying inmate. That's a weird name. Uh, he says this about the census. He says, quote, 
A similar situation exists with the Luke consensus of the whole world when Quirinius was the governor of Syria in Luke chapter 2 verses 1 to 2. This census was presumably made when Herod the Great reigned over Judea, Luke 1 5, and who was alive when Jesus was born and for some time after. Copious records exist from the time of Caesar Augustus's reign, 27 BCE to 14 CE. These records describe many events during that reign, particularly the most important. None of them mention anything about a worldwide census. And consider how Luke describes the census. People must return to the home of their ancestors. Consider what the empire would look like in order to accomplish that. Throngs of millions mitigating all over for the census. And yet all historical records remain silent on it? In his own history, Augustus himself fails to mention this achievement. That's simply not credible, end quote. It, how would you respond to this? Is the census recorded by Luke not historically credible? Well, it's it's interesting to me that this this uh, Pathios blogger says this about having no records of worldwide census. There are a number of points I could respond to in what he says there. For one thing, we don't have copious records for the time period. Tim often talks about how our records for these time periods could fit on one short shelf, so we actually don't have copious records. But secondly, uh, he has to be defining a worldwide census in some highly specific way in order to say that we don't have records. Uh, in, as a matter of fact, in uh, Augustus's Acts of Augustus, we have a record of three uh, empire-wide censuses. They were called the Lustrum census, and he carried them out at, at spaced intervals, and one of them was in 8 BC, uh, which would have been only perhaps a year or two before Jesus was born. Now, these could not be carried out all instantaneously. You know, here in the United States, we might have a census year, but it, it would take longer to do a count of the people in the Roman Empire. So I'm not sure what he means by saying we have no record because we actually do have records of several censuses. Now, the question is, do any of them correspond in any way to this particular one that Luke mentions? And I think that may be where he's getting this idea of no record because he's defining it in a really specific way. Uh, he's extrapolating from what Luke says about everyone going back to, quote, his own city. And then Luke says that, uh, Joseph went to Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David. We have to be careful about this. You could infer from that that everyone had to go back to the city of his ancestors from, you know, thousand, a thousand years previously. But Luke doesn't actually said, say that. That's an inference. Uh, it's entirely possible that jo uh, Joseph had family right at that time that he owned property in Bethlehem right at that time there's actually no statement anywhere uh in either of the gospels that Joseph himself was from Nazareth in Luke it says that they went from Nazareth in Luke it says that the angel went to Nazareth to Mary but uh Mary apparently had uh family or kin down in Judea and goes there, in fact, right there in those very in those very chapters. She could have met Joseph under those circumstances if he were a carpenter living in um, in Bethlehem, or their families could have known one another. Uh, it's 
people traveled that 70 mile distance uh, quite frequently. We actually find Jesus doing it pretty frequently. So I don't think we should assume that Luke is asserting that everybody in the entire empire had to go back to the home of their ancestors that was the home of their ancestors a thousand years before. I think that's an over extrapolation. With that out of the way, Actually, there's nothing at all improbable. The, the Romans liked to do censuses. They based their taxation on census, much like uh, we currently in America base our representation in Congress on our census, and they had to count people. And Augustus did do this. So this could have been the time in 7 or 6 BC when that lustrum census made its way around to, uh, to the region of Judea and had to be done locally and everyone to his own city. Uh, could refer to the city where you've lived recently. It needn't necessarily refer to the city of your very long distant ancestors. So no, there's nothing in itself improbable about this at all. Okay. Um, so the second problem that people usually bring up with the Luke's census is the 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 description of Quirinius in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, they see this as a historical contradiction because Luke wrote that Joseph and Mary returned to Bethlehem for a census and, quote, this was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Flavius Josephus says that the governor exists all right. He confirms his existence, but there's a problem. Josephus says Quirinius ruled from 85 to 86 and the skeptic argues this is too late because matthew wrote jesus was born when herod the great was alive and josephus records uh herod the great as dying about nine years prior to the governor of governorship of quirinius so at this point the skeptic would say checkmate luke didn't know what he was talking about mm-hmm. well it's interesting that in the the question you read a minute ago um the that skeptic quite correctly pointed out that Luke actually knows that Jesus is uh, born in the days of Herod. So Luke and Matthew agree that Jesus was born in the days of Herod. Uh, Luke mentions it in, in Luke 1.5. Uh, he connects it with the birth of John the Baptist and the conception of John the Baptist, which was about six months prior to the conception of Jesus. So that's a point of agreement between Luke and Matthew. It's also interesting to note that Luke himself is aware of the census under uh, Quirinius in AD 6. How how do we know this? Though he doesn't name Quirinius, he records a speech by Gamaliel in Acts. And in Acts, Gamaliel talks about a a rebellion that took place. This is in Josephus as well. And he says, as because of the census, Gamaliel just uses the phrase the census. And that would be the one in AD 6. So Luke knows all about that. And so it's interesting that he seems to actually know what he's what he's talking about there. So the real point is that the skeptic assumes that Luke is aiming in some sense for that census that took place uh, under Quirinius in 86 and that he just messes up and uh, places it more like in BC 6. But um why should we assume that he's aiming for that census? In fact, he his very phrasing, which is kind of interesting, it has been translated a variety of ways. This census was first made when Quirinius was governor. This was the first census when Quirinius was governor. It's been translated. This census was before 
the one made when Quirinius was governor. That's an interesting one. Or, as my husband Tim prefers, this census was completed when Quirinius was governor. So there's like four different translations. And obviously, Luke has something in mind when he says that he's trying to convey something. However uh, difficult it may be to figure out what he's trying to convey, why put that word first in there at all? What is he saying? Well, there are a number of possibilities. Um, one possibility is Quirinius was definitely around. He was definitely alive at the time that Jesus was born. He was a military commander. Uh, there was a rather uh, weak and wimpy um, couple of couple of governors there in that region. One of them may have been Varus, who very famously lost the legions of um, Caesar Augustus, very famous uh, defeat. And Caesar Augustus cried out, where are my legions of Varus? Because Varus was so awful uh, at it and lost and died. Um, so since Quirinius was a very capable military leader, he could have been put in command. The word that um, Luke uses there is hegemon. He was hegemon of Syria. So it's not a, a highly technical term. So he could have just been in charge of the census because he was definitely alive at that time. That's a possibility. Some people will refer to this as his having been governor twice. We want to be careful about that. That doesn't mean technically governor twice, but just been in charge in, of, of the census on an earlier occasion. That's a possibility. Another is this phrase, and it's, this one has a, a real, I think, virtue of simplicity. This census was made before Quirinius was governor of Syria. Since Luke does show that awareness of the census when Quirinius was governor, if he said before, that would actually all fit together. The fact he knows it's during the time of Herod, the fact that he knows that there's a later census under Quirinius, then he's actually being especially careful and especially accurate. And uh, we might not know which uh, Roman official was in charge of it, but that he's carefully noting that this is a different census from that one that Gamaliel refers to later as the census. If you don't like that because you think it's an implausible translation of the Greek, uh, then there's this census was first completed is another possibility where the idea would be the count was taken in 6 BC, but then the taxation, which prompted so much anger based upon that count, could have been done 11 years or so later, or it might have been, you know, 7 BC to 6 AD or something like that, uh, 11, 12 years later. There was a uh, census in Gaul around this time that took 40 years to complete. Uh, historian Paul Meyer mentions that. So that's another possible translation. So th the fact of the matter is, we don't actually know. It's not so much that it's a historical contradiction, like Luke says something that definitely contradicts something else that we have, but simply that we're not sure exactly which event he's referring to and the uh, optimal translation of his wording there. So that's a not so much a contradiction as a puzzle is what I would call it. Yeah, so that, that one possibility, I remember Daryl Bach bringing up in a video I saw on YouTube, and he said that it was analogous to how um, a, a road in his city was built. It start, it, the, the, the planning of the, of the road started like 30 years prior before it was actually completed with the concrete and the cement and, and everything, and cars started driving on it. And, mm -hmm. and so that would be like the, the census started – uh, around the time Jesus was born, around the time of Herod, and then it it was you're saying it was completed. It the whole the whole process took 
until about AD 6. The, the taxation part of it, yeah. which is what really ticked people off and actually did prompt a, uh, a rebellion that they paid the tax. That's one possibility. That's my husband's preferred one. If I had to pick one, I might actually prefer the this census was before. The, to take protos first to mean before the census was before the one when Quirinius was governor of Syria. But either of these is plausible. That one, the uh, before translation, is preferred by N.T. Wright, actually, who's a much more famous scholar than I am for whatever that's worth. Um, so I find it interesting that although not everyone agrees, not even all Christian scholars agree, that uh, it's certainly a very plausible or possible translation of that Greek word. So I like that one because I feel that it has a, a real virtue of simplicity, and it actually shows Luke being especially scrupulous about his history to say this was before the one when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Yeah, so it's so it's basically what you're saying is it's it's just a translation issue. It's not, and because there are several possibilities of how you can translate it, the skeptic shouldn't therefore say yes, we have a we have a his, a biblical error. Absolutely, they should be more careful about making that charge. Exactly, and also possibilities for which census could be in view. Uh, I skeptics want everything to be recorded. This is another thing. The argument from silence is sometimes their favorite argument. So that lustrum census in eight, it's actually pretty good. That's actually pretty close. Uh, and that it could be coming around to Syria, uh, that that region of Herod just about at this time. But not everything is recorded either. He, Luke himself is a historical source. This is something that's sometimes forgotten, is that we treat Josephus as infallible, and we act as though any historical fact mentioned in Luke has got to be duplicated somewhere else. If you tested any historical document by that, um, you'd think that there were a lot more a lot more errors in secular history than there really are, because not everything has to be re recorded in two documents that then survive 2000 years later. Yeah. And there, there's also yeah, there's there's this there's the sense that I see people putting the New Testament on a much, much higher standard than they would any other secular source. But. Also, I often bring up, and and this is this I, this is what I bring up when I respond to a question I'm going to bring up later in this podcast regarding Herod's slaughter of the innocents, is that there's a a lot of historical works that just don't survive until the present day, right. and you know we know that they're lost because they're quoted in works that do survive, like you know like um oh what's his name, oh I'm drawing a blank. He mentioned the the darkness at that. Jesus's crucifixion and the earthquake. Eusebius quotes him, but his work is lost. Yeah, well, um, it's like what I said about one short shelf. You know, that what we yeah. have from that time period is like one short shelf of books. Obviously, there must have been a lot more scrolls and so forth. Things just, they rot. Uh, the papyrus doesn't necessarily survive. So absolutely, the, the, that there are many reasons why the argument from silence is a poor argument, and that is one of them. Yeah, I mean, there, yeah, I mean, if you got in a time machine and went back, you might, you might be able to find more sources. But um, for all we know, but if they're not quoted by any sources that do survive it's just yeah it's just you, you gotta you gotta deal with the data that you do have and remember too um, that part of the reason we have the gospels is because the christians copied them over and over again 
it was important to them to preserve them, there might not have been a community to whom it was as important to preserve other sources that existed and, and recopy them as the paper or the papyrus was starting to wear out or whatever to make sure that they continued to survive. So about Quirinius, what do you think of the proposed alternative that I've heard several apologists give that maybe the I think your I think your argument about the translation I find that one to be the most plausible but I want to get your thoughts on I want to give your thoughts on the proposal that there might have been two different governors named Quirinius reigning at two different times one during King Herod and then one in 86 The one there I'm more familiar with is actually the same guy it's just that he had two different times when he reigned. I haven't researched the idea of two literally different people, and that would seem to be a bit of a violation of, of, of Occam's razor, um, especially since we know that this Quirinius actually was alive at that time. So you might as well, if you're going to say that, um, have it be the same guy. But just that he reigned or, you know, that he was in charge at two different times. Now, we we do need to be careful um, because, as, as Paul Meyer, the historian, has pointed out, we have a pretty complete record of the technical governors, you know, like in that technical sense of governor of Syria. And in that case, I really do think there's no space for him. But that would be that other option that I talked about, which I'm very open to, that he had a position of authority there, okay. even though he's not technically governor. I might I might have been misremembering the the proposal. I I first discovered it in Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ and it's been very it's been many moons ago since I've last read that and in, in which the person he was interviewing brought that up. So I I I may have that may have been what he said that it was just it was the same guy reigning on two different occasions and maybe I just misremembered it. Um let's talk about King Herod's slaughter of the innocents. In Matthew 2, he, he records that Herod sought to kill all of the babies in Bethlehem who were two years old or younger because he believed the prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah and the, the giant star. Uh, it, it was a sign in the sky that he was about to be born. And his, historians, scholars of ancient history have – sometimes raised questions about whether this incident really occurred, and that's because it's only mentioned in Matthew. It's not mentioned in Josephus or anywhere else, and I, I know skeptics, they have a field day with this. They think that maybe King Herod's genocide didn't occur because, after all, I mean, wouldn't somebody else, anyone else have recorded such a huge massacre? Well, that wouldn't be a huge massacre. Bethlehem was a small city, small town. Um, and again, we were just discussing arguments from silence. So this is another example of that. It's in many ways, it's the skeptic's favorite form. Um, we're talking maybe, maybe a couple dozen baby boys. It's This is a small, um, small town. And then it's just those babies. Uh, I mean, I hate to say it, but this was a brutal age. This was a very brutal age. Um, people did brutal things all the time. If anything, I would say, especially if they were powerful, uh, so for a powerful person to go and kill uh, a bunch of children of non-powerful people, it's ho-hum, here we go again. Uh, just If anything, what we have is the records of the crazy things that Herod did do that Josephus does record, same guy, 
actually, in a sense, confirms that that massacre of the innocent because it shows his character. He was a nut. Um, one of one of the craziest, which would have been, you know, just a couple years later than this maximum, when he was dying and he was sick, he he summoned the uh, chief men of Israel of the Jews and he had them locked up in the hippodrome. And then he said to his uh, his relatives, he said, when I die, I want you to promise me that you will kill them because all of these important Jewish men, because he said, uh, otherwise, when I die, nobody's going to mourn because they all hate me. So this way, when I die, uh, <laughs> at least someone will be crying. They'll be crying for their relatives that will have been killed. Now, his heirs did not, in fact, do that. They they released the people, but they kind of lied and say, yeah. Yeah, dad, we'll do that, you know, fingers crossed or whatever. And and said they would. Now, that's just an example. The guy was crazy when he suspected his sons of conspiring against them. He murdered them. He murdered. He had his favorite wife executed. So uh, Mary Omni. So anybody that he he was kind of a megalomaniac and anybody he suspected of being a threat to him or being um, unloyal to him or anything like that. He, it was like, off, you know kill them so he was uh not averse to killing large numbers of people i would say if anything that confirms this he would have thought nothing of doing this and whether josephus or anybody else would have recorded this as such things go i hate to say it but relatively small slaughter uh that's not that's not at all clear that we would have a surviving other record of it and it it fits the character of herod very well yeah so like so say like some someone like Josephus would have, you know, if if he had even known if it because Bethlehem was such a small place, but if he had even known about it, it would have he would have just thought, oh, well, you know, that that's Herod for you. He's he's crazy. He does things like that. I'm not going to waste precious papyrus on talking about this. Well, and it didn't have political implications. You have to remember that Josephus is telling the history of the Jewish people. So. Of course, he's going to he's more likely to tell about that thing where he locks them up in the Hippodrome because these are the chief men of Israel that he's trying to have killed. So he's more interested in these things as matters of political machination, killing his own sons and so forth, because that's going to affect who ends up reigning. Uh, whereas in this case, to kill some children in Bethlehem and Josephus might not have even known why he did it, uh, just that he was angry or whatever. He might not have known about the prophecy or anything if he even heard about it. It wouldn't fit necessarily with the, the narrative or the flow of his purposes in, in what he's trying to tell. But I think he probably didn't even hear about it. Yeah. Yeah. If Bethlehem, if Bethlehem was really that small, he, it probably it probably was largely unknown. Um, now, before we get into the positive evidence for the um, for the birth narratives and the reliability, uh, I want to go over a couple more uh, alleged errors. Uh, and you said oh, you said over email that this fourth one actually turns into it, it actually works in favor of the, the reliability. And this one is uh, I'm j I'll read the passage Matthew chapter two verses nineteen to twenty three. 
But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Matthew chapter 2, verses 19 to 23. Now, J. Caleb Jones of The Spirited Nature wrote an article on this passage, and he, he brings up the problem, and he, he answers it himself. Uh, but I, I just want to hear how you deal with it. Uh, and Jones, uh, he, he writes the problem thusly, quote, Joseph has already trusted an angel in a dream not to divorce his betrothed, Mary, even though she was prego with not his baby. <laughs> he has already trusted an angel in a dream to leave Bethlehem and go to Egypt. Finally, an angel told him that those who sought the child's life are dead, and he went back to Israel. But for some reason, when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. But why? Didn't we get assurance in the second dream? Are we supposed to think that the angel returned in a third dream, saying, oh, wait, never mind, there's one more guy who was seeking the child's life, and he's still alive. His name is Archelaus. Sorry, bro, I forgot about him. Don't tell my boss. Even stranger, this is not the only son of Herod who is ruling. As we read in Josephus, when Caesar heard these pleadings, he dissolved the assembly, but a few days afterwards he appointed Archelaus, not indeed to be king of the whole country, but ethnarch of the one of the one half of that which had been subject to herod and promised to give him the royal dignity hereafter if he governed his part virtuously but as for the other half he divided it into two parts and gave it to two other of herod's sons to fill up and to antipas that antipas who, who disputed with archelaus for the whole kingdom now to him it was that paris and galilee paid their tribute which amounted annually to 200 talents, while Batania with Trachonitis, I don't know how to pronounce Trachonitis. that. <laughs> Trachonitis. Trachonitis. As well as Aranitis, with a certain part of what was called the House of Xenodorus, paid the tribute of 100 talents to Philip. I'm not going to read this whole thing because it's kind of lengthy, but that's in Jewish Antiquities 17. So the the guy here says, Here's the puzzle. Joseph, uh, Joseph, not Josephus, is afraid of Archelaus, who is ruling in Jude, Jerusalem in place of his father Herod. But Joseph is not afraid of Herod Antipas, who is ruling in Galilee in the place of his father Herod. Additionally, an angel assured Joseph that everything was fine and that he could return to Israel. But regardless, in another dream, the angel warns Joseph to go to Nazareth, end quote. Yeah, so it's really interesting to try to see why that's even supposed to be a problem, uh, truthfully, because to begin with, is Herod dead or isn't he? Yes, Herod is dead. So the angel, if, if Herod is the one who sought the child's life, the angel's telling him the truth. That can be as far as exactly which part of Israel to settle in. That can be fine-tuned after Joseph goes back. Galilee is still part of Israel. So there's really no apparent contradiction here between telling him, hey, start your start your journey back from Egypt, and then uh, telling him, okay, but the better place for you to 
reside in Israel more specifically is in Galilee rather than in Judea. That's his, there's no no contradiction between these or problem between these. So it's this pretty lame uh, objection just to begin with. If God is actually guiding all of this, he can, you know, he can get him started on his way and then give him more specific instructions later on. But uh, the the real irony here is that this is actually an excellent confirmation of the historicity of Matthew's account. Very often skeptics like to make these things sound highly mythical uh, as if they're, you know, similar to some kind of Greek mythology or something. But this is really grounded. Uh, Archelaus, as you as you just read, and in many other, there's other interesting passages that I'll come to in a minute in Josephus about Archelaus. So just to begin with, the very fact that it's referring to Archelaus, as it puts it, uh, kinging it, he was he was uh, not yet actually confirmed in his position, so he was acting as king. It's kind of kind of an interesting concept there, uh, because he had to go and try to get confirmed in his position, and actually it was rather shaky um, by um, by Caesar. Anyway, it, the very fact that it refers to him is already a tie down to secular history that is really interesting because if Matthew's just making this up, you know, we need to get away from the synachronistic idea that they had Google or they had Alexa or something at the time where Matthew could say, I'm totally making up this flight to Egypt. I'm totally making up this return from the flight to Egypt, but I want to throw some obscure Tetrarch's name in there hey, uh, Alexa, who was in charge in Judea at the time? I could put this name in there and make it look kind of cool and realistic. They did not have that genre of realistic fiction. They did not have those research capacities. So right away, this is a truthful reference to who the guy who actually was ruling there. Moreover, without even naming Antipas, it insinuates that somebody different was ruling in Galilee. And that's so casual. That evidential value of casualness is, is really something we need to re reclaim and our understanding of history, the mere fact that Joseph went ahead and went to Nazareth instead implies that someone different was ruling in Nazareth. If this was written many, many decades later by someone who had no connection with the time, no knowledge of the time, he's just making up the story. How does he know both that Archelaus ruled there in Judea and that someone else, and it later emerges that it's Herod Antipas, was ruling in, in Galilee? I mean, that's it's fascinating this, that this is actually a confirmation. But there's more. Uh, there's actually more. There had been an incident, which Matthew doesn't mention, but Josephus describes at a certain amount of length, where Archelaus, um, there were protests. It has kind of a surprisingly modern sound. There were protests in the temple after the death of Herod the Great, and they became violent. The, uh, the Jews actually stoned some Roman soldiers. I believe they stoned them to death, if I recall correctly. So these were uh, not peaceful protests because of some things that Herod the Great had done before he died. And Archelaus kind of got trigger happy. He said, I can't allow this to go on. And so he sent horsemen actually into the temple precinct and they slaughtered thousands of Jews, according to Josephus, and they canceled Passover that they sent, you know, criers around to the countryside saying Passover is canceled. So it was this really big, big deal. And in fact, that's part of why he got in trouble with Caesar Augustus, because a complaint was sent there from the Jews. Hey, you know, he did all of this. So you can imagine 
on a, on a human side, okay, it mentions that, that Joseph has a dream, but also it says he heard that Archelaus was kinging it there, and he was warned, um, but he was afraid. It mentions that he was afraid when he heard it, almost as if there was something that, you know, he knew even in a human way. Why would just hearing that Archelaus was reigning there be something that would frighten him? And as the skeptic says, why would he think Antipas would be any better? So it's not because Archelaus is personally seeking to kill the child. Matthew doesn't say that. Matthew doesn't even insinuate that. He just says Joseph was afraid when he heard it. If Joseph comes back shortly after the death of uh, Herod the Great and he hears people telling him about what has been going on and this incident of violence, you can well imagine that even without uh, getting a dream, he would say, you know, I really just don't want to deal with more of these violent Herods. You know, this guy must be more like his father, uh, inclined to kill large numbers of people. And remember, they've got a connection back in Nazareth. And we know this. We know this from Luke. So this is another way that they kind of fit together, that Mary's from Nazareth. So he chooses to go and settle there. I call it two axes. They have two axes. Uh, you know, there's the, the Bethlehem axis and the Nazareth axis. So axis. So he just says to her, you know, let's just go back where your, your folks live. And that's where they go instead in the hopes that Antipas will not be as, as dangerous and uh, sort of crazy or trigger happy a guy as he fears Archelaus. So this actually fits really well with all of this external information. And it's, it's really surprising that the skeptics should try to make an objection out of it. Yeah, I remember I remember. Um... Tim, uh, your husband, Tim McGrew, I almost said Tim Stratton, um, he uh, he has this uh, le lecture on YouTube, and I listened to it a lo long time ago, uh, and, and he was he was talking about this in his series on the reliability of uh, the Gospels, um, and I didn't know the term undesigned coincidence at the time, but this would be – this would be like – Instead of like an undesigned coincidence between one New Testament gospel and another New Testament gospel, this would be like an undesigned coincidence between a secular author and Matthew. Yeah, you can definitely call it that. And there's a series on my YouTube channel on uh, it's him, Tim, doing undesigned coincidence. There are these really short, professionally produced videos. And for the purposes of that, he did use the term to include external confirmations. Uh, it's just a terminological thing. I'll sometimes call them incidental external confirmations, but it is very much like what you say. Yeah, I find, I think that's that's really cool. Um, so now let's let's move on to some of the positive evidence for the infancy narratives. What what's some po what's some good positive er uh, evidence for the reliability of Jesus's birth narratives that you would like to talk about? So that one that I just gave is one of them, and that's really good. Another one concerns the um, fact that these birth narratives would not work well for Christian apologetic purposes. And this, this is something we really have to focus on. If you look at Luke and you look at what the angel says to Mary, what Zechariah says after um, after John the Baptist is born and the Jewish nature of these and also their focus on the victorious nature and the kingly nature of the Messiah who is to come, that is not 
in any special way fitting with what Jesus actually did while he was on earth. Now, we Christians would tend to put those prophecies of his ruling and reigning into an apocalyptic uh, setting and say, well, you know, eventually he's going to come back and rule and reign. But he did not set up a, a rule at the time. Think specifically, for example, the Song of Zechariah. He says that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us to perform the mercy promised to our forefathers and to remember his holy covenant and so forth. Um, the angel says to Mary, he will sit in the, the um, throne of his father, David, and of his kingdom, there shall be no end. And can you imagine someone making that up, for example, after the fall of Jerusalem? Incredible. Nobody would make up that song of Zechariah and put it into his mouth to say, hey, everybody, you know, come and become a Christian because, uh, you know, hey, all you Jews, he's going to help you to be saved from your enemy. The, the, the Romans have just been there crucifying all these people and not leaving one stone upon another. Even prior to the fall of Jerusalem, it was clear that Jesus came. And he went and he did not set up an earthly kingdom. If you were going to make up these stories as Christian apologetic, you would it would be very easy and you would be very likely to make these people say something different. For example, the angel could say he will reign in the place of his father, David, but his kingdom will not be of this earth. That would be very easy to have him say the only hint of any sadness or anything is this one tiny little phrase where Simeon says to Mary a sword will pierce your own soul also your own your own heart also that's the only hint of any sadness everything else all the prophecies everything is this messianic Jewish hope uh, and you can well imagine people reading that and expecting that that would refer to an earthly kingdom so the great thing about this is they look early they do not look late. They do not look like things, stories that were made up later. That's a definite, definite sign of, of their authenticity. Uh, another type of evidence that's coming out in a video that I just recorded today and I intend to release in the next few days concerns the difficulty imagining a motive for the Virgin Mary to uh, either lie or acquiesce in these things as a lie. And she was still alive in the time of the, the very early church. She's mentioned in Acts 1 just in passing. Uh, if she was a teenager when these events occurred, she could have lived on, you know, well on uh, into her 60s and still been alive when Luke was gathering this information. Now, you know, we think of Marian devotion and um, everybody saying, oh, wow, you know, the Virgin Mother, we're going to have a hymn to the Virgin. But that wasn't really something that a Jewish culture would glorify or aggrandize. So for her to come up with this story later on, um, if anything, it would bring back up her, her disgrace at the time. It could cast doubts upon her faithfulness to Joseph if she insisted that it was not his child. Um, and James, would, her son, her other son, I believe, would still have been alive. He's making his position in the church on the basis of the fact that he's Jesus' brother. He's not going to want to suddenly hear, oh, by the way, you're only Jesus' half-brother, uh, if he's never heard so much as a hint of this before. So the motives actually kind of tell against her going along with this, you know, cockamamie story being brought later later on. Um, there are actually some some ways that these things fit together. I'll just give one more. In John, the early chapters of John, we find John the Evangelist quoting John the Baptist. 
and he's John the Evangelist is talking about the pre-existence of Jesus because that's a theological theme of his that he was you know before everything and you know um, in the beginning was the word and all of that and then he he quotes John the Baptist as saying um, he's to be preferred before me because he was before me and John the Evangelist is just thrilled about that that John the Baptist said that he clearly takes it to be an allusion to Jesus eternal pre-existence that somehow because John the Baptist was a prophet he knew that Jesus was a pre-existent being now suppose we didn't have Luke and we just looked at John and we said um, well maybe Jesus was just older than John the Baptist I mean you know John the evangelist never says how old Jesus was he doesn't mention Jesus age at all so couldn't John the Baptist have just been saying, well, he's, you know, older than I am, he's greater than I am or whatever. Why does John the Evangelist assume that John the Baptist is not referring to physical, uh, Jesus being physically the elder uh, than he is? Well, apparently it's because he knows that John the Baptist is physically older. And how do we know that? Well, that's in Luke. John the Baptist is six months older than Jesus. So it's this interesting, very indirect way we can tell from the way that John the Evangelist interprets what John the Baptist says, that John the Evangelist already knows something about that infancy narrative that we find in Luke, which is that John the Baptist is actually the older one. So therefore, if John the Baptist says he was before me, he must have some sort of more mystical meaning in mind. But this is all implicit. John the Evangelist doesn't spell any of that out. So it's this wonderful sort of indirect connection between John and Luke's, Luke's birth narrative for John the Baptist. So those are just a few of those specific indicators of authenticity in the in the birth narratives. Cool. Um, are there any other arguments you'd like to bring up? Well, I think we do need to talk about who Luke was. You know, and something that I really would stress is that skeptics act like these authors are just uh, what word should I say? credulous they're just naive they just believe any old thing and i don't think that's the picture that we get of luke from all of our other evidence about him and i think that's where you know that that other knowledge that we have becomes really important yeah so you said over email you said that there is uh massive evidence for the veracity and care of luke um and we've already gone over some of that um can you tell can you tell our listeners where they can go to find more information about this cuz I I've looked I've looked into it myself there's a lot there's like a whole massive tome on things that Luke got right just in acts Exactly it's amazing and when we when we recognize that it's the same person that's important and and then you put that together with the fact that in uh the preface to Luke, he says that he's inquired into these things so that his reader, Theophilus, can be assured of the truth of what he's saying. Now, you could say, well, anybody can say that, right? But then when we actually find him to be borne out, we say, yeah, that's actually, he really was careful. So it wasn't like Luke is just sitting around with his pencil or his stylus. And everybody's going, hey, go tell a, go tell a story to Luke. He'll believe anything. It, you know, it, it doesn't look like that at all. So I've got a video online, and this is even even just part of the evidence even so it's a whole lecture i did it's called acts gets hard things right 
I've taken most of my examples there from a book by Colin Hemer called Acts in the Setting of Hellenistic History. I love to read that book. It just strengthens my faith every time I read it. These are little things. These are things that are found only in inscriptions. Um, there's an island called Cauda where they sail past it on the journey to uh, to Rome in Acts. And Luke has its location correct. Like when he tells them how they got blown aside by a northeastern wind from Crete, then that's exactly where they would end up. And he says they, they rested under the lee of Cauda. And that's how you, that's where you would be blown by a northeastern wind from, from Fairhavens in Crete. And maps help to illustrate this. There were other authors of the time that actually got the location of Cauda wrong. So it looks like Luke was actually on the boat and he's like, he knew that that's where they ended up. Um, there's a book called The Voyage and Shipwreck of St. Paul um, by a guy named uh, Smith of Jordan Hill. He was a 19th century yacht owner who knew about these things and talks about like the soundings that they take and the things they do uh, in the in the voyage. And he, he even says that it looks like Luke is um, a landsman. He's not a sailor himself, but he actually observed what the sailors were doing. And then it's this wonderful thing that he doesn't really understand the meaning of what's happening, but he's accurately recording what's happening. That's some of the best, you know, evidence you can get that the person actually was there and was an eyewitness. So it, he was a companion of Paul. I think it's just undeniable that he was a companion of Paul. I'm not saying people don't deny it, but I think it's not rationally deniable. So I would uh, encourage people to look up if they like videos, uh, that video uh, of mine, Acts Gets Hard Things Right, that I gave for the Rachel Christie group here at Western Michigan University, and then also get a hold of Colin Hamer's book on the book of Acts in the setting of Hellenistic history. Yeah, that that book by Colin Hamer is the one I actually had in mind, uh, mm -hmm. and, and it just um, – and in their book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, Frank Turek and Norman Geisler bullet point just, just – the things that Colin Hemer talks about in more detail, and there's like 84 mm -hmm. little, little tiny things, thing insignificant th thing, things that you, um, you know, someone who's doing a, a biblical devotion really wouldn't care that much about. But he, mm -hmm. he just, he's very, very scrupulous. Um, and I can't remember who it was that said this, but one, I don't know if he was a, a an archaeologist or an Old Testament scholar. Uh, but he said that Luke is um, the hot. Sh he should be ranked the highest of historians. You're probably thinking of Ramsey, who said that you know yes, archaeologists have yes, taken it, it for granted. You know, and and the other thing about these being so small is that they're very hard to look up. They're not possible to look up. I mean, you would have to actually be there. We find them out from obscure obs inscriptions somewhere so to know you know what were the rulers actually called in this city it's not like that's something you could just look up but if you were actually in the city you could hear people referring to the rulers by these terms and all that kind of thing shows that he's actually accompanying paul on his travels this also would give him an opportunity to talk to mary i would argue um to actually have potentially met her because Paul was imprisoned in Caesarea for a couple of years. I think it's very plausible that that was when Luke did his research for his gospel, going down to Jerusalem and talking to whomever he could find there about what had happened. And Mary may well have been in Jerusalem at that time. Okay, so before we go, um, tell our listeners where they can find you. And uh, I'll also include 
that video that you talked about, the hard things that Axe gets right in the show notes. Mm-hmm. So um, I have an author page, LydiaMcGrew.com, so that's pretty easy to remember. I try to keep that updated. I sometimes forget, but I try to. Um, you can just look me up on Facebook, uh, and I, you don't have to be my Facebook friend. You could just click follow for my public content. Facebook has changed its algorithms recently, so I want to encourage people to favorite me on Facebook as well, because in the new Facebook algorithm, you're more likely to see my content. Uh, even if you follow me, you might not always see my content right away, but if you favorite me, you you will. Um, and then my YouTube channel, Lydia McGrew YouTube channel, go there, hit the bell, get notifications and subscribe. So those are all places where you can find me. I have a book coming out uh, in, Lord willing, spring of 2021 called The Eye of the Beholder, and that is on the Gospel of John. It's entirely, we've been talking most about Luke and Matthew here, um, but that's entirely on John because John comes in for even more uh, skepticism from scholars about his historicity. People who are positive about Luke will sometimes sort of uh, exalt Luke by dissing John. You know, Luke's a good historian, but John's, eh, you know, he's mixing all this theology. So I'm really taking that on and uh, arguing for John as historical reportage. So keep an eye out for that announcement. Uh, on my Facebook page, on my uh, on my YouTube channel, and other places, and on of course on my LydiaMcGrew.com webpage. Okay, well, thank you guys for listening to the Cerebral Faith Podcast. Again, I'll I'll include the links to all of the stuff that um, Dr. McGrew mentioned in uh, in her outro here, and I want to give a shout out to my patrons. Let me pull up the patron manager. Uh, James Godomsky, Andrew Melnick, Michelle Minton, Nathan Hamilton, Edwin Liu, Jordan Hampton, Austin Long, Brandon Whitaker, and David Parrish. Now, next week, uh, I'm not exactly sure what I'm going to do for the Christmas apologetic series. I don't know if it's be me talking about the logical coherence of the incarnation, or if it's going to be. Let me let me pull it up right quick. Um, no, ne- um or if it's going to be Nick Peters uh, talking about whether or not the virgin birth was plagiarized from pagan deities. Um, depending on how, Nick, uh, on how Nick's schedule works out, it's either going to be an interview with Nick Peters or it's going to be me. Um, so come back next week. Uh, this Christmas apologetic series, it's going to be going all month long. And, um, and then – but uh, the – on the 26th, I'm going to have Hugh Ross on to talk about the Christmas star. So if you want some more uh, festive apologetical content, come back next week and every week after that. So thank you for listening to the Cerebral Faith Podcast. God bless and peace out.